Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoon show. Bill Arnold, glad that you are with me today. We are uh, excited about what's going to be happening. David Wheaton is going to be joining me in just a minute, and I can hardly wait because we're going to continue our study on the book of Genesis and how that book is most relevant for today. I, I think we're probably 16 or 17 episodes into this series, and I am loving it, and I can't wait to get back to it. I think we're going to be looking at chapters 32 and 33, so if you have you have your Bible handy, open it to Genesis 32, and we will get started. David Wheaton, of course, is the host of The Christian Worldview. You can go to thechristianworldview.org to learn more about David, his radio show, his writing, his blogging, his books. They're all spectacular. Uh, David, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you, Bill. It's good to be with you today. Always nice to be with you. Let's uh, pick up a little bit where we left off last time. I think we were uh, in Genesis 30 and 31. Maybe we can touch on a key point from the last time just to get things uh, started again. Yeah, well, last time our conversation is going to connect to this time in, in that uh, we find Jacob in Genesis. Uh, you know, the, the, He's like the third patriarch, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, after this splitting apart of their family. Um, because there was, uh, you know, Jacob was the younger born, Esau was his older brother, but Jacob ended up getting the, the blessing as a firstborn as God had, had, had desired and has intended, even though there was lots of convoluted circumstances to get there, which we won't rehash today. But when the family sort of broke apart because Esau was so upset that uh, he felt he had been deceived out of getting the firstborn blessing, which was a hugely uh, valuable uh, thing at that particular time, uh, he had intended in his heart that he was going to murder his younger brother Jacob, and, and uh, their their mother thought found out about this, and uh, sent sent Jacob off to the the city or area of their homeland, which was a couple hundred miles away. Uh, this is where Abraham had come from, and then their father Isaac had come from, where Isaac had found his wife Rebecca, and so the situation is going to repeat itself here, where. Now the parents think Jacob needs to get out of here just for his life. Otherwise, Esau is going to murder him, and we're going to send him back to his homeland uh, to find a wife uh, from our own family uh, dynamic there. And so that's, what, that's where we were last time, is that Jacob flees for Canaan, and when, uh, flees Canaan for to go to his ancestral homeland. And when he's there, he not only finds one wife, but he finds four <laughs> through the story <laughs> of— uh, you know, he works for his uncle Laban when he goes there, and Laban sort of takes advantage of him and doesn't give him the wife, one of his daughters that he thinks he's, he should be marrying. He gives him Leah, his older daughter, by trickery, and then the, he ends up getting married to the younger daughter, the daughter he wanted to marry, which was Rachel. And then the daughter, the uh, the wives start competing to see who can have more children. Rachel's barren and Leah's bearing children. And so it's just a long, twisted story. And he's been there for 20 years, you know, uh, working for Laban. I mean, in other words, the 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 thing we talked about last time as being the the big narrative in the whole midst of this this sordid affair with this family is in, in the midst of fallen and sinful circumstances in the world, 
God's sovereignty, his, his ability to reign, his purposes still advance forward. He advances them forward even in the midst of this fallen world. And that's what we, we covered last time is Jacob prospers as he goes back to his ancestral homeland, finds wives and so forth and so on. But it's certainly a really twisting and turning story during that 20 years. Yeah. All right, David, let's jump into uh, chapter 32, and maybe we can start with uh, just the understanding that God is a God of encouragement when, when we need it the most. Right. So after this incredible ordeal over 20 years uh, with his uncle Laban in his ancestral homeland, uh, God had always wanted him to come back to Canaan. That was going to be the promised land. It hadn't been taken over yet. The exodus hadn't happened from Egypt. They hadn't taken over the land yet, but that's where... God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and now to Jacob, that's where the, he was going to be settle his people, even though it was full of ungodly tribes of people. So finally, you know, when, when Jacob leaves his ancestral homeland, he has to actually flee from Laban because Jacob is prospering so much with, with his livestock and everything else that Laban and his workers are getting jealous and envious and he senses this is not a good situation, so he flees back to where God really wanted him to go, back to the promised land or, or Canaan. And so the problem is, is, that, is that on the way back, uh, Laban finds out that his son-in-law, Jacob, has now fled with his two daughters and his grandchildren, and he's upset about it. And so he chases uh, Jacob toward the land of Canaan and overcomes him, overtakes him. And, you know, this is a very uh, situation fraught with danger here because it could be violent. It could be who knows what's going to happen. But God protected and encouraged Jacob throughout that really tense situation with his uncle. OK, so now he gets past that. And now as he nears the, the promised land, he has another potentially explosive encounter with his, lo and behold, his brother Esau, his older brother. They haven't seen each other in 20 years, but now he needs to come back into the promised land. So he's leaving one conflict with Laban, and now he's coming into another with his older brother who, who had intended to, to murder him 20 years ago. And so God encourages him at the start of chapter 32. And this is really how God works in our lives. When we really seek him, uh, he, he says, now as Jacob went on his way, coming to meet Esau, the angels of God met him. And when he saw them, Jacob said, this is God's camp. In other words, in the middle of this wilderness, coming back to Canaan, you know, Jacob could have, could have been thinking, oh my, you know, here I barely left with my life from my, my uncle Laban. Now I have to meet Esau. What am I going to do? He needed strength and encouragement. He couldn't do this alone. This was now a massive company of people and animals. And uh, God is a God of encouragement in our most dire circumstances. And that's what Jacob was in right now. Mm-hmm. So, David, uh, maybe we could uh, talk just a little bit more about this, uh, the meeting that Jacob and, and Esau have. Yeah, well, as we talked about 20 years earlier, right. Esau was intending to murder him, to yeah. kill him, because so, he had you know, traded his, birth, his, his birthright and then stolen the blessing in his mind, and so it was a very bad situation. And now, now Jacob's coming back into the land of Canaan, not just by himself now. Right. Now he has four wives. He has 11 sons, probably daughters, and he has all kinds of livestock. I mean, he, he is, he's a rich man now. He's got inventory. God had blessed him. Yeah, I mean, this is a huge company of people. I'm not sure how many, but it could have been, who knows, you know, maybe nearly 100 people with kids and, and wives and servants and, you know, ranchers or whatever he had with them to move all this 
company of people and animals back into Canaan. And so he realizes right away, he, he's not going to be able to, you know, sneak into the land <laughs> with this large of a company of people. You know, e Esau was living in the land somewhere and, you know, he knows Esau had to murder in his heart. And so he's going to have to figure out a way to try to make this right. And so he sends out some messengers to Esau in front of him as he's moving towards Canaan. And uh, he, it says in, in uh, Genesis 32, 3, then Jacob sent messengers ahead of himself to his brother Esau. Uh, he commanded them, saying, this is what you shall say to my Lord. Now, he's taking a very deferential uh, situation here in front of Esau. He does not want to act like Esau's superior, even though, remember, it was Esau, the younger, the, the elder shall serve the younger. He doesn't want to portray that to Esau. He thinks Esau maybe is still harboring bitterness. And he starts you know, bringing out droves of people and animals before him, and he goes to, to, uh, to Esau to send messengers to him. And the, the response is from Esau is that the messengers come back and say, we came to your brother Esau in the land, and furthermore, he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. There was no, there was no verbal response from Esau, just him coming with 400 men. And then it says in verse 7, which is the understatement of the year, <laughs> then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Yeah, I would say that is the understatement and, of the year. You know, he, you know, at that particular time, you, know, you read the Old Testament, you see that, you know, uh, when when there was in, intentions for evil, a lot of times everyone was was killed, and so you know you can imagine how Jacob now with the big family and everything else and wives that he thought you know there was no response on Esau like oh great you're coming back into the land I'm looking forward to seeing you it was just he's coming with 400 men, and so he was extremely afraid by this situation and for and, and for good reason. Yeah, so as we continue this story, Jacob is certainly going to. Um pray before meeting Esau, and he does an amazing job of uh, kind of modeling how we should pray. That's right. He was in a, a dire situation. He really thought that his life and his family's life was at, at stake here, was, you know, on the, the, the razor's edge here as he's mm -hmm. going to enter Canaan. Now, he just escaped Laban. Now he's going to meet his brother, who he thinks is still angry at him 20 years later. And so what does he do? He do he does what all of us should do at, at all times, pray without ceasing, but especially in times of real trial like this that he's entering. He prays. And it's interesting what he says when he prays. He he goes back to the promises that God has made to his grandfather Abraham, his father Isaac, and then to him as well. He says, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, Lord, who said to me, he's, he's repeating the promises that God made to him, back to God. Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will make you prosper. In other words, he's saying, God, you told me to go back into this land. And he says, I'm unworthy of all the favor and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. Uh, save me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, again, he's going to quote back God's promises back to God, I will assuredly make you prosper and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be counted. He's repeating that Abrahamic covenant back to God. Remember, it was the land, the seed, the blessing. That's what was promised to Abraham originally, repeated to Isaac, and now to Jacob. And he's saying, don't let this come into a situation where we're all going to be killed by Esau. You've made a promise that we're going to come back to the land and we're going to prosper in the land. And so, again, Jacob prays this prayer as we should. We should repeat God's promises that he makes to us back to him. I mean, somehow that just really moves the heart of God. 
and uh, God protects him, as we're going to see here next, uh, in his encounter with his brother Esau. Mm. Yeah, David, great reminder, we should always pray in a way that is Scripture-led. We should always mm-hmm. go to the God's Word and, and pray Scripture to God. It's a way that softens my heart faster than anything I know. That's exactly right, and that's exactly what Jacob does. He just takes the promises of God and, and almost is like reminding God that you've made these promises. Please, Lord, keep them. Yeah, because you fulfill every promise. All right, David Wheaton is my guest. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to continue our study in the book of Genesis, which we've been at for a while. You can always head over to thechristianworldview.org to learn more about David, and we'll take a short break and be right back. David Wheaton is my guest as we continue our series in the study of the book of Genesis. And we're in chapter 32, if you have your Bibles open. And I'm getting down to the uh, point of the story. This has always been a fascinating uh, story for me, David, and that's the story of Jacob wrestling with God. What is that all about? Yeah, it's actually kind of a difficult passage to understand. You know, right in the midst of this this story where there's a lot of tension, there's there's drama about to be to unfold when Jacob's about to meet his brother 20 years later, Esau, after you know Esau's intent to murder him. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He thinks he's going to lose his life. He's, he's prayed to God, and he's going to meet Jake, uh, Esau the next day. And so what happens the night before uh, meeting Esau is that Jacob, there's this account in Genesis chapter 32, starting in verse 24, where, where Jacob wrestles with God. And you think, well, yeah, how does that work? Well, just to read a a sentence or two, it says, Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he had not prevailed against Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, the, the man he was wrestling with, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So the man said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have contended with God and with men, and you have prevailed. And it, it's it's probably a, a difficult, maybe much more complex of a passage than probably I'm able to explain, but this is a, a real turning point in Jacob's life, is that through these, these struggles and these trials that Jacob's going through in his life, he's struggling and trying, that this was a deepening, I believe, a deepening time of commitment in his life where he kind of crossed a line that he was all God's. He it wasn't he was going to get past the, the the deceiving part of his life that he was known for deceiving his brother and and being deceived by Laban and some of the other things that went on in his life and his name was going to change as well from Jacob which means literally heel catcher or deceiver or supplanter which is what exactly what he had done to his older brother Esau. It was being changed to Israel when that name means God's fighter or he struggles with God. And so this, quote, man that, that Jacob was, was wrestling with, if you look in the footnote of the Bible here, it was, it was called an angel, but was really a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ himself. And, and the meaning behind you know, Jacob contending with God and you have prevailed, I'm not sure I can exactly explain that, but this is a, 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 like you said, the beginning of the question, it's a unique passage, and I, I think it just goes back to at least 
it's a major a major turning point in in Jacob's life as he's about to meet this this big day that's about to happen that he doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. He has this close encounter with God that deepens his relationship with God. Yeah, David, I probably will go back and study that some more because I don't know if I've ever had a, a real thorough understanding, and maybe one is not even available. Uh, but when you think of the word wrestled, uh, you know, I we've all had wrestling matches. You've, you know, you got brothers that I'm sure you've wrestled with. Mm-hmm. You can only do it for about 90 seconds or two minutes, then all of a sudden both are exhausted, right? Yes. Yes. And, and the story says he wrestled with him until daybreak. And I thought, well, right. I'm going to have to look up that word wrestled and see what it means. And is it a combination of, of verbal discussion and physical discussion? It's really hard for me to understand that. Yeah, it is. It's a difficult passage. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, did, I, I look at it as a situation where Jacob is wrestling with God. Maybe, maybe it's a time where we sometimes wrestle with God, trying to do things the way we want to do them. And then we we surrender to God's purposes and his will. I sense it that, but it, it is a difficult passage to uh, to interpret. Mm-hmm. And then when we think of God uh, touching Jacob's hip, which was dislocated, and I thought, boy, you know, God was probably obviously restraining his power to not hurt him, and all he has to do is touch the hip to pretty much right. kind of uh, slow him down. Uh, so that's a, a fascinating topic. I, I'd love to do a really deep dive on it someday. And he and he limped for the rest of his life yeah. too. It was a reminder of this wrestling with God. And of course, he couldn't defeat God. Right. I mean, we we know there there must be something the meaning here beyond the fact that, of course, you can't you know wrestle with God and win. Um, so it must have been there must be a little more of a a wrestling and maybe a spiritual growth going on in 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 Jacob's life. Yeah. So let's jump into the thirty third chapter of Genesis now. Let's go to uh, the the meeting between Jacob and Esau. What happened right. there? Okay, so, okay. So now he's left Laban. He got yep. through that trial. He's he's coming now, and now we know he sends messengers to Esau, and Esau's coming at him with four hundred men. He prays, and then he wrestles with God, and he prevails. And now, as you say, Genesis thirty three opens. What's going to happen when he finally meets his brother? And, and it's really a, an incredible story and almost a relief and a, a great testimony to forgiveness in the change that has taken place in Esau's life. But I want to give away the end of the story. It says in Genesis 33, it says, Jacob raised his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming. In other words, he was coming, and 400 men were with him. So he divided his children among his the one wife, Leah, and Rachel, and the two Made servants of these two women. He had four wives, eleven sons, other daughters. He put the slave women and their children in front, and then Leah and her children next, and then Rachel and Joseph last. His favorite wife was was Rachel, and his favorite son, as we'll see in the story, is Joseph. So he put them last. He was thinking, well, if the first ones get killed, that would be unthinkable, but at least it won't be Rachel and Joseph. I mean, so read into that what you want. But anyway, <laughs> he himself passed on ahead of them, so he went before all of the all the wives and the children. And it says he bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother Esau. And what you can just feel the tension here. You know, here he's going to meet. There's been, a, there's been a bitter rivalry. There's been really, really ill will, bad feelings, bad blood uh, between these brothers for a very long time, especially from Esau toward Jacob. Esau with 400 men could have easily, I mean, there was no defense here on Jacob's side. He could have easily killed all of them 
And he really could have eliminated the line of Jacob, if you think about it. Here was Jacob with all of his family in one place. No, no and kidding. That you talk about the lost blessing. Well, then Jacob's completely out of the way. Whether that would have reversed you know, Isaac's blessing or not, I don't know. But he could have eliminated all of Jacob, including Jacob and his wives and sons, at this moment. But then the most unexpected of all things occurs when Esau doesn't just sort of stand there on his horse or whatever he's on and, uh, you know, accept all the, the surrender and bowing. It says Esau ran to him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the brothers wept. Wow. I mean, what an unbelievable sentence mm. in scripture in, in the testimony, the lesson here for forgiveness and all of us, we get offended, especially the hardest offenses are by family members sometimes and, and, and to forgive. Uh, you know, 20 years later, Esau had forgiven him. And it's interesting what, what Jacob said to him. He said, I see as one sees the face of God and you have received me favorably. Something had happened in, in Esau's life. I don't know whether Esau formerly really wasn't a God believer, a God follower. Remember, he despised his birthright, didn't think that was important. Whether he had become one because the Edomites were a people in the future, the, the offspring of Esau would become an enemy to Israel. But at least Esau, individually in his life, had not allowed bitterness and the hatred for, for Jacob to continue. He had forgiven, which is a great lesson for us today, to, to be people of forgiveness. You think about how much Jesus Christ forgives us for our sins against him. We have no right to hold uh, bitterness and resentment against anyone else, no matter what the offenses are, because we've infinitely offended God greater than anyone else can offend us. Yeah, amazingly powerful illustration. David, we just have a couple of minutes left. Maybe we can talk uh, about God's faithfulness that we see in Jacob resettling in Canaan. Yeah, so, you know, after he meets Esau and they, they have a, a reconciliation time and Esau actually offers to, hey, let's ride into the land of Canaan together. And, and Jacob is offered, by the way, not, not just a little gift to appease Esau, but a huge gift. He had offered him 550 animals. I mean, that, that, was, that, was, like, that, was, that was their currency back then. Mm -hmm. And Esau didn't want it, but uh, because Esau had had many flocks and he'd been prospered himself, as God promised. By the way, Esau would prosper, so both the brothers had prospered. Esau finally accepts the gift and wants to go into the land together. But Jacob kind of politely refuses. Maybe he felt like, we better leave well enough alone here. We've had a, a peaceful reunification. You go ahead. I will see you. I will come to see you where you live in the land of Canaan. By the way, that meeting never took place. There's no evidence that the brothers ever mm. got together again. But then at the close of this chapter, we see God's faithfulness in that he's brought Jacob now back into the land 20 years later where he promised he would bring him back. Mm. We see Jacob an altar at the same place where his grandfather Abraham had erected an altar. He came back and he realized that this huge journey with all the ups and downs, the twists and turns, and all the things we've talked about the last couple of times has finally been brought around full circle. And indeed, God's sovereignty, his purpose, were going forward even in the midst of wow. a sinful and fallen world. And it's the same case in our lives as well yeah. when we are followers of God. Amazing. David, thank you so much for our, our time together. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving with you and your family. And you too, Bill. Thank Thanks. you. You bet. We'll take a short break and be back with Jonathan Lehman. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno, Brad Tondra. 
I am glad to be back uh, talking to Jonathan Lehman. He's the editorial director for Nine Marks, and he's a writer and a brilliant thinker. And I always like having him on the show. You can go to nine, the number nine, marks.org. So the number nine, marks.org, to learn more about Jonathan. His books, his writing, and everything else he does at Nine Marks. Jonathan, welcome back. Thanks, Bill. Good to be here. Yeah. I want to ask, uh, we're in such an unusual situation in, in the world um, just post-election, and then now we've got uh, an ongoing COVID uh, pandemic that seems to be almost ramping up a little bit. But I say this is a spectacular time for uh, ministry opportunities and to spread the gospel. How do we best take advantage of this situation? Yeah, great question. It, it is an unusual moment, isn't it? Best best way to take advantage, I think, is to continue being faithful Christians, showing hospitality <laughs> to non-Christian neighbors. I think it's sharing the gospel as the Lord gives us occasion. It's certainly in, in try, trying your best to gather with the church and sitting under the preaching of the word. Uh, I, I, I don't think the rules have changed at all. I think we're called to be faithful where we are. So... When you have conversations with people and you ask how are they doing and they, and they might respond with, you know, I've never been quite this scared with uh, everything that's happening with COVID and all, um, you know, maybe give us some coaching as to what a, a good response would be. Yeah, uh, number one, I mean, I certainly think we want to show a lot of empathy and understanding. Number two, uh, we're, we're also reminded that Jesus delights in using the difficult times like these to do the work of his kingdom. And so finally, though, though we are embodied physical creatures and subject to the fall and the futility and the curse, just like everyone else, and therefore can experience and share in compassion over those things, we are also those who um, uh, don't mourn without hope, right? And I, I, I think it's, it's, it's important as you're responding to somebody who's struggling in the present moments, I mean, we're all feeling the fatigue. Mm -hmm. right? I'm, in this, I'm in the state of Maryland, and the governor has just tightened things up again. We were gathering as a church inside, oh, wow. and then last week he said, nope. <laughs> so last week we were outdoors once more in 50-degree, 45, 50-degree <laughs> weather. Yeah. And, man, people are fatigued. But a Christian, I think, simultaneously always has to do those two things. Number one, show compassion and empathy. Number two, show courage and hope because we serve a higher king. And none of these things are accidental. None of these things are a mistake uh, from the Lord's perspective. So, yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about politics, we can talk that. You know, if we're talking pandemic, that's something else. Yeah. Where, 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 what are you thinking? How are you responding to questions like those? Well, I always uh, find myself... Uh, you know, I love your two words that you used, courage and hope, because I, I have a fair amount of courage when it comes to the, the COVID. I don't, I don't seem to feel overly concerned. I'm being, the, I'm being cautious. I'm trying to do all the right steps, wash my hands, mm -hmm. wear the mask, all that stuff. But mm -hmm. I do see it as the greatest common ground opportunity to have conversations um, with people as to how is your life going, even to a stranger? How are you yeah. uh, navigating your way with COVID? And they might end yeah. up giving you all kinds of information about your life that you didn't even ask for, 
which uh, gives you an opportunity to respond with with uh, a little bit of compassion and also maybe open up uh, a discussion about uh, faith and God. I was on a conversation earlier today with a group of 10 pastors, a Zoom call, and a couple of them were sharing exactly those kinds of stories of, of not just sharing the gospel, but people like God, God using that sharing to, to actually save people and, and coming to faith. About one man on a college campus and a non-Christian college campus and, and dozens coming to, uh, that's probably another exaggerated, a dozen maybe coming to faith in Christ and being baptized. So yeah, wow. the Lord is certainly at work. Yeah. So I'm at the gym uh, last week, or this week actually, and did not remember my earbuds, so I don't have earbuds in, so now I'm overhearing conversations that people are having, and there was a conversation I overheard with a, a man and a woman, and the woman asked the gentleman, how are you navigating uh, through this COVID? And he said, well, I'm a witch. I I'm a Wiccan shaman. Huh. And I thought, hmm, well, there's a guy who... Uh, doesn't seem to have any reservations about sharing his faith, which is, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it was one of those little uh, moments where I thought, well, first of all, I'm going to pray for this situation because I don't know how, uh, if this woman it could be influenced by this. And I wanted to just pray spiritual protection on this little discussion. But I also thought, boy, I mean, Christians, let's all pay attention here. Let's, uh, let's remind each other to be bold in every opportunity we have. Yeah, if, if the witch will do it, shouldn't, shouldn't <laughs> if we? the witch is going to do it, come on. As well, no, that's exactly right. That's a good word. Yes, yeah, so I was I was at a car dealer last week, looking at cars and speaking to the financing lady, and was able to get into a good conversation with her. She admitted that she and her star husband were struggling, and so we, we were able to talk about God's purposes. Uh, she claimed to be a believer. I'm not sure if she was based on some things she said, but we were able to have good conversation about God's purposes sitting right there at the car dealership. And uh, yeah, so there are plenty of opportunities abounding like yeah. this. Yeah. And again, let's just be bold. Let's be um, uh, very intentional and, and pray in the morning when you get up. Um, you'll probably agree with this, Jonathan. Lord, lead me into the right conversation today with the person that needs to hear uh, your your word of hope and truth and how, how can i disagree uh, well i know yeah i know you can't uh, but i mean there's <laughs> there's uh, just let god pave the way for whatever conversations he might uh, make available for you that day amen that's yeah. right yeah good word so now we've got uh, holidays coming up and that's around the corner what about some of the difficult con conversations that we might have among uh, family if we decide to gather yeah, that's really tough. Well, if we decide to gather, that's that's the first thing. I mean, yeah. I think people aren't. There are people in circumstances. So, for instance, my wife is a, is a second grade teacher, and my sister in law is a um, high school teacher, and the requirements placed on teachers are such that quarantines are required, such that you might put the whole class in jeopardy if you gather with your family out of state. So, you know, my family and my brother's family and his sister in law are having to have the question: Do do we even gather? Do we do we drive out of state? And uh, I, I think that's where uh, we need to show a lot of grace with one another that, look, if we miss this Thanksgiving, it's okay, right? <laughs> it's not the end of the I world. I agree. So, so if, you, if you, friend, listener, are, are able to freely gather, but a family member says, is, is, says they are unable to, they're, they're uncomfortable for this reason or that, or constraints due to work, whatever it is, just do your best to show a lot of grace and patience and understanding 
knowing that Lord willing, if he doesn't return, you know, we, we have next year to gather for Thanksgiving. That, I think that'd be the first thing I'd want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as for the gatherings themselves, yeah, I, I think of Philippians too. consider others better than yourselves. So if, if you're comfortable not wearing a mask, but, you know, your sister-in-law or your brother is uncomfortable with, with, without masks, you know, what does it mean to do as Jesus says? in Philippians 2, to consider others better than yourselves. I think we should always, as Christians, be asking that question. Mm -hmm. Jonathan, if you were to give us a view from, let's say, 35,000 feet, looking out over uh, uh, how we are doing as believers when it comes to unity in the body of Christ, what would would your response be? Uh, you, You mean specifically around politically? Do you mean around covid well, I don't, you know, I don't want to general. Yeah, I would say, you know, you put all that in the pot and stir it up and then then give me your yeah. answer. Honestly, brother, I, I wouldn't say I'm super encouraged. I think in the last I think the temperature has cooled off a little bit since the election. I think that's good mm-hmm. that, that I that I dimly perceive. And, and you may have a different seat and see different things than I do. But it seems like the temperatures have cooled off a little bit. Uh, nonetheless, if, if I'm looking at the last six months, I'm a little discouraged at the unity of the body of Christ and how much we're willing to fight in precisely those same places that the world is willing to pers- fight. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't stand up for truth on matters like abortion or LGBT agenda. There are certainly things we need to stand firmly on truth about. Nonetheless, how can we do that with meekness, right? Mm-hmm. Blessed are the meek, says Jesus. Well, even even as they're undergoing persecution, he says a few verses later, right? From Matthew 5, 5 to Matthew 5, 10. How can we be meek even when they're coming after us? I think we're called to be courageous and meek. And I think too often we saints in the United States right now forget this, the blessedness of meekness. And I think a little more meekness might go a long way towards maintaining some of the unity, the spirit, and the bond of the peace that we're to have in our churches. And so the fact that we're fighting over masks People are leaving churches over them. The fact that we can't sit in the same pew with people who have maybe a little different political convictions on how to approach certain things than, than we do, that makes me sad. And, uh, and there's a lot of room for us as Christians and certainly as church leaders and pastors to grow in teaching that. Jonathan, I'd be curious. Uh, I've had this thought for a couple of weeks, maybe longer, and I'm thinking that the enemy doesn't have a specific agenda regarding politics or COVID or anything like that. I think the uh, goal of the enemy would be to let's see how many people within the body of Christ we can get to start disliking each other and start feeling so annoyed with each other that we stop communicating. Uh, I I think that's right now. I don't know if you really want to go here, Bill. We I, might get in trouble. But well, let, I don't know let, if I do either. Let me, let me take you up on the mountaintop with Lucifer, who says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you all the political agendas you want. I'll give you all the elections you want. I'll give you all the Supreme Court nominations you want. I'll give you all the rules of justice and immigration laws and health care bills and et cetera, et cetera, that you want if you bow down and worship me. Right. Mm-hmm. In other words, I, th- I think I'm saying what you're saying. I, I think Satan doesn't care too much about this or that political agenda. But if he can um, capture our gaze just long enough, if he can get us to subvert King Jesus as number one priority and make the kingdoms of this world our number one priority, 
he's won. Mm-hmm. And that that's a tough thing to do. Let's just let's just admit it. It's tough to know a how do I stand up for truth and justice and what I think is right, but b always keep Dean King Jesus first and the body of Christ first over and against what I think is best for America today or whatever your nation happens to be. Yeah, that takes wisdom. Yeah, I mean because I think if Satan can get to the point where two believers uh, within the body of Christ don't talk to each other anymore because of a mask. I think he's going perfect. I'll use whatever is available. Oh, my goal yeah. is for you guys to stop uh, loving each other. No, that that no, that's that's, that's exactly right. He's yeah. been doing it from the beginning. Yeah. Let me take a little break. Jonathan Lehman is my guest. Go to ninemarks.org. The number nine, the word marks, M-A-R-K-S dot org. Learn more about Jonathan. He's got books. He's got blogs. He's got his good-looking picture up there. All you got to do is head to ninemarks.org. We'll be right back. I'm back with Jonathan Lehman. He is uh, the editor of Nine Marks. He's written a whole bunch of books and wonderful articles. You can head over to ninemarks.org to uh, see more of his work and his colleagues. It's a great website, number ninemarks.org. Jonathan, I'd love for you to talk about a, a little bit about just biblical manhood and, and wo- womanhood. Um, there seems to be a lot of confusion nowadays with what's going on in our world, and I'd love for you to remind us of the importance of both. Yeah, gosh, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, God created uh, human beings in two kinds, a male kind and a female kind. You see that then throughout Scripture um, in a series of commands that are given, right, especially in the context of the home and the church. He gives one set of commands to men and another set of commands given to women. But here, here's where it gets a little tricky um, and much wisdom is required. It also seems to be encoded in nature, not seems to be, is, you know, hmm. it's encoded in our very chromosomes and DNA in, in, in a certain respect. So the laws of nature even suggest that there say, show, demonstrate that there is a, a mankind and a female kind. So then it, where Christians start to disagree and where we start to bicker and fight is well, what, what does it mean for women working outside of the home? What does it mean for, like, even if we agree on the biblical commands of the home and the church, and we don't agree on those all the time, so even if we do, what does it mean for, you know, women as leadership and leaders and, you know, in the, in the marketplace or in the public square? Um, and so what's required is two things simultaneously. Number one, being very careful students of Scripture and, and not binding what the Scripture doesn't bind, Right. But, but binding what Scripture binds in terms of, say, those domains of home and church. But at the same time, using wisdom to recognize that bound up in nature are these differences. Which is to say, I might raise my daughters a little bit differently than I'm going to raise my sons, even though I'm pointing both to Christ-likeness. Okay, well, what exactly are those differences? How, how, how do you raise your daughters differently and disciple your daughters differently than your sons. And that, that, that's tough, right? That takes wisdom. That takes recognizing, okay, well, this is just a product of my context and my culture. This is not necessarily a biblical thing that I'm, I'm standing on. Um, and so that's why I think we need to have some grace towards one another to recognize that my family and your family might have slightly different views of what 
womanhood or manhood looks like, even as though we're both trying to apply scriptures. And I, I think you're going to feel this in all sorts of ways. So, for instance, when that husband and wife decide that the wife's going to work full time out of the home and you're thinking, oh, I just don't feel comfortable with my wife doing that. OK, how can you have grace and uh, towards one another, compassion towards one another? Do you come to slightly different decisions on these things, even as you both affirm some idea of manhood and womanhood? So that, that's where I think a lot of the conversation is happening, uh, Bill, and um, it's, it's important to attend to Scripture. It's also important to uh, think wisely, and finally, it's important to show grace to other Christians as we move towards slightly different applications of the Bible in our lives. Mm-hmm. Is this a, a little reckoning moment for complementarianism? You know, I've said that. <laughs> I know you have. I'm on your website. <laughs> yeah. I thought I'd ask uh, I, a leading I, question. I, well, I think I think it is because complementarianism, which which is the basic view, if you're, if you're new to that word, is the view that God created men and women equal in worth and dignity and honor, but that he's assigned them different roles in the context of the church and home. Um, you know, it, it was... In some ways, it's been there throughout church history, but it was sort of repopularized and doctrinalized in the 1980s and 90s with, with names of people like John Piper and Wayne Grudem. Well, what's happened since the 80s and 90s? Well, the culture's view of manhood and womanhood has shifted quite a bit, right, as we all know. Uh, and uh, those as legitimate categories in our, in our culture have, have shifted quite a bit. And so what that means is a lot of evangelicals and Christians are kind of looking back at the articles written by the Grudems and the Pipers and those who, who sort of started this in the 80s and 90s and saying, oh, I'm uncomfortable with those applications. I, I don't like that. That seems too restrictive. and That seems sexist and so forth. And so that's led many to say, well, I don't know. I think I reject complementarianism, but but I see the differences in the Bible, but I, I don't like your complementarianism. And so there's more and more disputes rising up within what's called the complementarian camp. And I think a need for us to look again to scriptures, to think about our context, and do our best to apply the Bible to our context. So yes, that, that is what I would call the, uh, the, the moment of reckoning for, for complementarians. Mm-hmm. I think I've asked this to you before, but I'm curious in, in the place now where we're doing a lot of online church, uh, how long uh, should a sermon last? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's oh, different gosh. when you're live in the building, right? And maybe when no, you're on a, right. on a Zoom or a you know a, an online church service, um, mm-hmm. you know, is there an efficiency ah. to an online service that we should pay attention to? Well, you know, I I, I think that the big answer is it just depends, right? Right. How long? <laughs> how, how how long can how long can people in your culture and your time and place and room and uh, uh, listen? What, what, what are they, what are they kind of trained to listen to and for how long, how, how good, frankly, how good are you as a preacher, a teacher at kind of maintaining people's attention? Some people can keep it for five minutes, some people for 50. I remember sitting there once and listening to, uh, I was attending a church in Dallas at uh, Swindoll's church. And man, the guy was just telling a story and I looked at my watch and lo and behold, 55 minutes had gone by and, how how did he do that right? Right. He, he just had, he had an ability a, a charisma to, to keep our attention yeah so i think it really just depends now i'll, I'll give you another example in, in this particular covid moment where churches are meeting outside most of the pastors i know who might preach for 45 50 minutes inside recognize that outside they've got to cut it to 20 25 minutes because you got the kids running around you got 
eagles attacking each other in the air. You got, you know, bugs flying around or, or whatever the case may be. And there's just attention spans outside are not the same as they are inside. And so a good pastor is going to use some wisdom to decide, yeah, let's shorten a bit. Yeah. In other words, know, uh, know what's, know your audience, know what's going on in the environment and, and, um, Make sure you pay attention to that. That's an important component, especially when you're outside. I think that's right. I think that's right. But I, I do want to say that there is a general mandate on pastors to, I would say, push our people a little bit. Let's not entirely cater to the culture, okay? So even if they're used to be hopped up on television and movies, and so therefore their attention spans are real short, we also know the good word, word of God is good for them. And so I think there is some, uh, I think there's some wisdom in in saying, hey, look, if, if the world's going to hand me a bunch of people who can only listen for 20 minutes, you know, is, is there a place over time to train them up to listen for 25 or 30 or 35? Mm -hmm. Not infinitely, of course, but it's good for people to hear the word of God. If they're only going to hear it once a week, you know, is 20 minutes really enough? Right, right. Can I can I try to give a little bit more, please? Yeah, yeah. Amen to that, Jonathan. I got a, probably four more minutes left, so this is a, a question which I know you can easily fill the time uh, because you've written a, a book on it um, or a um, booklet. Is it mm -hmm. loving to practice church discipline? This is a big question. Yeah, that just came out this this. Uh, this fall, it's, uh, I don't know, 40, 50 pages, so grab a cut. It's only a few dollars on Amazon right. or wherever. Grab that if you can. Um, it's not always loving. I mean, you, you can practice it in an unloving way. Let's just start by acknowledging that, right? I mean, you have the kind of the horror story of the scarlet letter that we all think back. Now, that was hyperbolized. That's, it didn't really happen. It was seldom that bad, and that's how we like to conceive of the Puritans. But nonetheless, we understand that. Church discipline can be done in an unloving, proud, self-righteous, hurtful, harmful way. And, and God forbid that we do. You know, Lord, preserve us from that. Nonetheless, biblically, church discipline done biblically is a loving thing. The Lord disciplines the son he loves and chastises every son whom he receives, says Hebrews, right? Mm -hmm. It's for discipline you've had to endure. So who, who's it loving for? Well, first, it's it's loving for the, the sinner who's caught in sin and self-deceived by sin and living in unrepentance, right? It's only unrepentant sin that we discipline. It's not repentant, only unrepentant sin. So it shows love for the sinner that they've come to redemption. Uh, it shows love for the weaker sheep in the in the church that they might not be led astray. It shows love for the non-Christian neighbor watching, that they might not be deceived, that the, the church is just like the world. And, of course, it shows love for Christ, that he is powerful and good and better than sin. I'm trying to think of uh, an occasion that I've heard about or because I have not been in, involved in a, a, a church discipline uh, moment. I'm sure you have as an elder of your church. And, uh -huh. and how, how did it go? I mean, I, I, I can tell you stories on both sides, stories okay. of people being being removed. I can tell you stories of people being restored. They're, they're both one's hard and one's glorious. Right. The hard yeah. ones. I, the, for the first time, it was it was the running buddy of mine who, who uh, one day we were sitting for lunch and he told me he was involved in a certain lifestyle back in the 90s. He told me he was involved in a certain lifestyle of sexual sin. I, I had no idea. He was mm -hmm. a member of the church. And I said, you know, the Bible says you shouldn't do that. And he said, well, God told me it was OK. And I said, no, 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 he didn't. 
And then I got another brother involved, and we both confronted him, and then eventually the elders got involved and confronted him, and he was convinced that God told him it was okay. In other words, it was clear, it was a significant sin, and it was, it was unrepentant. So on a sad day, the church removed him from membership, right? We, the, the, the elders came before the congregation and said, so-and-so is, is committing this uh, 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 sin, this lifestyle of sin. There's no dispute about it. He, he, he acknowledges that he does it. The, the facts are not you know, in question here. It's unrepentant. And by the way, quick side note, you don't do it based on the pastor's interpretation. You do, you do it when the facts are clear and everybody agrees. Or two or three witnesses, as Jesus says, right? And so we removed the church, voted uh, to remove him from membership in the church. Does that mean we were saying he's a non-Christian? Well, it means we as a church are no longer willing to affirm him as a Christian. That's what church membership is. Church membership is saying we as a church collectively take responsibility for so-and-so's profession he is a Christian and taking the supper with us. And so when we remove a person from membership, we're saying just the opposite. We're saying we will no longer affirm this individual. We're not finally saying, well, you know what he or she is before the Lord. We don't mm -hmm. have Holy Spirit X-ray vision eyes. Then, of course, Bill, I could tell great stories of people coming back and confessing their sin. Right. And uh, being restored and rejoicing like the prodigal son. Yeah, so helpful. Jonathan, thank you so much for this time together. Um, this booklet should be uh, available right now on ninemarks.com. You can go buy it right there or pick it up on Amazon. It's only a couple bucks. So thank you so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Jonathan Lehman has been my guest. Ninemarks.org is the website. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.